この子は神様がくださったクリスマスプレゼントうん私たちの子供よだいたいこんなとこで赤ん坊の鳴き声してる方が変じゃんだから俺たち何ができるんだ親を探すわ探したってつまり俺たちはてめえの面倒一つ見られないろくでなしの仲良し三人組だ十分やったじゃねえかアクション映画の主役じゃねえ僕たち年末の大掃除に来ましたちょっと小さいかクリスマスの奇跡だねわかー Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast.、Uh, very likely, in fact, almost certainly the last episode of the year 2021. And this is indeed our Christmas special. We'll be talking about the Japanese、uh, 2003, I believe. Yep. 2003 film by Satoshi Kon, Tokyo Godfathers, which is an appropriate movie for this time of the year. But before we get into that, I would like to introduce my co host. And I apologize, Jason, for not introducing you、uh, in the beginning, but I, I'm not working off a script. So. Yep, we're doing this on the fly. Absolutely. So, you're my co host, Jason Maher. Jason, how are you doing? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm doing fine as well.、Uh, it's getting a little bit colder here, but I am inside a warm ha- apartment, so I'm, I'm doing all great.、Uh, So, like I said,、uh, in today's special episode, we're talking about Co- Tokyo Godfathers. But before we'll jump into that discussion, we'll do our usual thing where we talk about、uh, our media consumption since last time we spoke. So, Jason, what have you been watching or reading or playing?、Uh, well, I've just completed watching over 50 films for a festival next year. Oh, wow.、Uh, yeah.、Uh, just、uh, feature mix- films?、Uh, mixture of features and shorts. So,、uh, okay. Yeah, that's why I've been a bit silent on my blog. <laughs> that, and I'm just too tired <laughs> to concentrate.、Um, in terms of films purely for entertainment,、uh, I've been making the most of、uh, Amazon Prime and、uh, some of the free films on there, including、um, The Green Knight,、uh, The Dev Patel, sort of Arthurian legend,、um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer,、uh, Michelle Moynihan,、um, Neo Noir, I guess you would call it.、Um, the Encounter, Riz Ahmed's latest、uh, film, a sci fi、uh, thriller about,、uh, yeah, what else?、Uh, I watched Nightmare Alley, the 19, 1953 version.、Um, the Rainer Werner Fassbinder film, World on a Wire.、Mm, I have still yet to see a Fassbinder film. Yeah, this was my first encounter with Fassbinder, and I was really impressed. I, I've known about his reputation for a long time. And、um, actually, this is a two part TV series、uh, made for Berlin television, I think. Yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, I have a, a very stupid reason for not having watched his films yet.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has to do solely with his、uh, handlebar mustache. <laughs> okay. I don't, know, I don't know what it is about it that kind of. I mean, I, I don't hate handlebar mustaches.、Uh, it's,、uh, I don't know. I, the, the very first thing that I. The very first piece of information I read or heard about Fazbinder was that he was a big ladies' man at the time. I don't know if this is true or if this was a 
misinformation, but that's the first thing I read. And then I saw a picture of him and then just something didn't, didn't seem right. Just that, that mustache does not say ladies, man. Okay. Uh, so, so like I said, a very stupid reason for, for not watching it. And it's not like I'm refusing to watch it. It's just, I haven't, I haven't really actively sought him out. I think you'd enjoy World on Hawaii. It's a sci-fi film. Sort of before The Matrix, there was this. And um, yeah. it's got great style. And, I've, been uh, told that, I've been told that many times before, that I would enjoy most of his films. Hmm. Yeah. And, a, and a lot of them, he do, he's not in it. So I guess that would be... I, 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 don't <laughs> have to, I don't have to see him, so that's fine. Yeah, you can forget. Exactly. But um, yeah, just uh, like the main actor himself, I can't remember his name, but uh, he looked like um, Ian Holmes' face on Daniel Craig's body, and he's just got this macho air about him, and um, he's going around with a severe case of existential angst, and it took a while to get going, even though I kind of figured out what direction it was going in, Um, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought the direction was brilliant, and um, the acting was good. And yeah, if, uh, yeah, I recommend you watch it if you get the All chance. Right. That's it's on my list. And um, yeah, my I also uh, had another cinematic first, uh, watching a Ingmar Bergman film, Summer with Monica. Uh, I've I'm not, not sure. seen that one, but I'm you know Bergman. I'm no stranger to him. I've seen a few of his films. Yeah, it um, Summer with Monica was his debut film, I think, and um, it's kind of like done in a realist style and it's got this like uh, firecracker performance by the lead actress I can't remember her name but uh, yeah it's like uh, charting like this uh, first love for a guy that just goes completely wrong but it's a summer he'll never forget and um, I also does start... it star does it star um, what's his name uh, the guy in Seven Seals what you're thinking of is it yeah I'm blanking on his name very um, very Max von Sydow Max von Sydow is that is he in it as well? No, I don't think he is. Okay, so it's it's before their collaboration, I'm guessing. Mm. Yeah, but Seventh Seal might it it is one of my favorite movies of all time. So it is it is I am quite a fan of Bergman, although I am not. Uh, it it's not an easy any any most Bergman films, and I've seen you know, and he kind of gets almost ironically worse later on. So some of his seventies and eighties film get even less watchable but he's not he's never an easy watch i know some people uh can you know watch bergman like uh, like uh, a bergman film like it's a, it's a thrilling action movie but i'm certainly not one of those it's it's i need to be a very very uh, particular state of mind to be able to just get through one yeah i always had the impression that they were austere cold and miserablest and so, slow i'm purely talking slow. about sort of being able to sort of kind of get into the narrative not not necessarily about the me- the the thematic elements which are austere and cold as you say yeah so yeah that was my first encounter with Berman and um sort of uh shot in a realist style uh yeah it was easy to get into um it reminded me of the Yasuzu Asamura film Kisses only um Kisses has sort of like a, a really heavy slant on the responsibility that the young lovers at the center of the story have to um inherit from their parents whereas uh some of monica is like young people rebelling against that um responsibility so it would make an interesting double bill put together um and uh the uh i've started watching 
Wolf's Rain, which is on Amazon Prime, um, because the writer Keiko Nobumoto uh, recently passed away, and that was one of her creations. Um, really enjoying the series, it's 30 episodes, and uh, it's currently on Amazon Prime, free in the UK, both the Japanese and uh, English dub. And uh, in terms of video games, I'm playing Resident Evil 3, the original, and uh, Mech Commander 2. And um, Is Resident Evil 3 one of those that uh, have they have remade? Yes. The last okay. Resident Evil remake was Resident Evil 3. Okay, interesting. And it was a fan outcry because uh, content was cut and people felt like it was a smaller game because there was less exploration involved. Ah, I see. Interesting. So, uh, because I yeah. know I've, I'm, I haven't played a single one of those, but I know that um, the remake of 2 was received very well. I think maybe even you mentioned that. Yeah, I, I have Resident Evil 2 remake, and it's a fantastic uh, sort of reimagining of an already perfect game. It's totally scary and um, immersive and very cinematic. So, yeah, if you get into the Resident Evil series, then obviously do them in order one, two, three. Uh, four. Um, people hate on five and six, but I quite enjoy them. Um, and people regard seven as a return to form. And the recently released Resident Evil Eight uh, is highly regarded as well. And that's been my media consumption, really. All right. So, uh, talking about what I've been doing, I watched a film for actually the cinema that I'm gonna post a review soon called Schemes in Antiques. It is a Chinese film, uh, sort of an Indiana Jones ripoff. Well, not really, but it has that sort of archaeology element uh, in it, similar, an adventure, sort of an adventure archaeology element, similar to, uh, I'd say more similar to the sources that inspired Indiana Jones as opposed to Indiana Jones uh, itself, but in that vein. Mm-hmm. I read a novel called Shakespeare's Planet by Clifford D. Simak. Oh, never and heard of it. No, it's I mean it's a relatively obscure book from a uh not an obscure author, but um an author that is not as well known as uh as other people in his field. And it's essentially about a crew from Earth. Well, a person, because the, uh, spoiler alert, everybody else dies, but that's the very first chapter of the book, so I'm not really spoiling anything. Uh, uh, being frozen, so in, uh, what's, what's the term called? Um, suspended animation, right? Yeah. Oh, hypersleep. And, uh, in a trip that, to find a, a, a planet, and it turns out that he's been, the person that survives the trip has been a, a frozen for a thousand years. Uh, and he arrives in a the oh, the first planet that they find that is hab- habitable. Apparently, took a thousand years for the trip. It turns out when he he finds there, he finds that other humans have already been there because uh, throughout uh, the trip, uh, the thousand years, obviously, uh, their uh, human the human technology has advanced more, so faster ships and faster means of communication have been invented. So people ha- uh, people have uh, uh, arrived. Uh, there before me, or at least one person, and that one person called himself Shakespeare. But he's dead by the time that the new this the protagonist gets there. So that's that's hence I'm I'm just trying to explain the title Shakespeare's Planet. Nothing to do with the actual Shakespeare. It's just the one person uh, that arrived there before him. It was it called himself Shakespeare. So that's why 
uh, he, the, the title is that. And it's um, sort of a, a slow, meditative, very short novel uh, about sort of the meaning of uh, what it is to be human, what it is to be uh, isolated and away from home. Uh, it was an interesting book. Not the author's best, but a fairly interesting book. Mm-hmm. I am rereading uh, The Plague by Camus. I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but it's a book that I reread very often. Uh, and it's, you know, a relatively short novel, so it's, it's uh, not a huge commitment, but I, it's a book that I really enjoy. So I'm, I'm rereading that one currently. Mm. I, <laughs> I started watching the show House. Oh, okay. Hugh Laurie. With, uh, Hugh Laurie um, and a bunch of other people. Uh, and it's, I, I generally avoid medical dramas because they kind of, um, or a medical shows of any kind, because they kind of uh, aggravate my hypochondria as I'm sure happens to a lot of people, you know, you, someone, someone comes in with a rare condition in the show and they kind of go into all the horrible things that happens to humans. And then you start thinking, oh, what if I have that? <laughs> so I try to avoid, but I, I, I've been okay so far. I've, I've been able to manage it. Um, and it's, it's a pretty entertaining show. It's kind of it's been memefied over the years or to the point that it's ridiculous, mostly because of the main character's sort of quirky personality but it is actually a really good show it's it's kind of a detective show but instead of solving crimes they solve medical problems Mm. Uh, but otherwise it has all the trappings of a detective show and uh what else oh and i i have uh i did buy the flash forward collection on the japan society website and i've been watching some of their films okay which ones let me see uh let me see if i can pick up the list so yeah i watched the projects Oh, yes, yes, yes. I watched uh, Wild Berries. I watched Jesus. I watched Forgiven Children, and I didn't realize that I had actually seen this. And in fact, I've, I've reviewed it uh, for V Cinema, uh, but the, the, the name didn't ring me, didn't ring a bell. But as soon as I was, you know, 10 minutes in, I, I kind of kind of got familiar again. I watched uh, A Boy's Sato, which is a short film, but a very interesting short film. Uh, and I think that's that. Those are the ones. I still have a few days left in the, uh, in the uh, before the the rental period expires. So I'm going to try to watch a few more. I don't know if I'll make through every single one of them. Uh, I think I, I've seen about half. Okay. So uh, which ones have impressed you the most? Jesus. Uh, that kind of was a very hard, but also very well made film. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't seen it. I I've heard about it though. It's, it's actually, it's, uh, I think it's the directorial debut of that director. And I, I'm not sure he's directed anything else. I might have to double check that. But I, I remember when I looked it up, it was, and it is about a, a family that moves from the city to the countryside. And I, I wasn't exactly clear on this point, but it, I think uh, the, the kid, and the kid is the protagonist of the family, and he's about 10, 11 years old, something like that moves into a uh starts going into a religious school and i think it's because that's the only school in the area that they're in or maybe it's the best school i'm not exactly sure but it's a religious school and it is him trying to sort of understand sort of the effect of a religion in his life but also trying to sort of make a connection with people who don't necessarily see eye to eye with him Mm. Uh, and it's also <laughs> the film is called Jesus because he constantly hallucinates of a little uh, miniature Jesus running around uh, like pretty much everywhere he is, and that's that's quite humorous. But then the 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 film takes a really dark turn, like some halfway through. Yeah, like it 
it's 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 phenomenal. Uh, I I encourage people to watch it. It's not very kind on religion, so so that's something to be aware of. But it is, I think, a very fair examination of it. Yeah. Uh. So that I think that's my favorite film so far. Uh, I did enjoy the project as well. I thought it was a, an interesting an interesting film. Yeah, and a totally sci-fi ending as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, a bit silly, but I think a good a good type of silly. Oh, I'm glad you uh, enjoyed that one. Yes, yes, they're all very good. I mean, I haven't seen a film that has disappointed me so far. I think that is it for um, my media consumption. It was, you know, I enjoyed those movies, and uh, I'm sure there's other stuff that I'm forgetting, but these are the most important, the highlights of my last couple of weeks or whenever it was the last time we spoke. Uh Definitely in November. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. And that's now approaching Christmas. So it's been maybe a month even. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think that was our media consumption seg- segment. And the next is our news segment. So I, I believe you have uh, some uh, news for us, Jason. So uh, almost uh, immediately after our podcast about Cowboy Bebop, uh, Netflix announced that it was canceling uh, the live action version after just one season and um spec because netflix uh doesn't release too much information about how their shows performed um people have been speculating and it seems like there was a combination of just uh terrible critical um appraisal and a massive drop off in um viewers uh in the latter half of the first season and uh that was their reason for cancelling it yeah, I was going to say, because it's interesting, like, a lot of everybody hated it, but in order to hate it, everybody must have watched it, which is, I mean, that's, uh, Netflix, you know, wouldn't care why people who watched it as long as they watched it. But it must have been what you said, where, you know, people, you know, watched the first, maybe the first half or so, and didn't watch the second half, which is sort of a, a, a negative trend for, for a show to be, to remain on air. Yeah, it's, like, I haven't seen it myself yet. Um, I'm still curious about it. Um, I didn't finish it, by the way. That's why I didn't mention it in my media consu- media <laughs> consumption. I said I would, but it just—I don't know. I didn't. It wasn't bad. That's that's what. It, it, like, if it was terrible, I could at least you know satisfy my cynical self and say, "Oh my god, that was terrible." But it wasn't. It was just you know unremarkable. I guess that's the only way I can use it to describe it. Yeah, and yeah, it just inspired a fan backlash. Um, that I haven't seen on a scale since maybe Prometheus, uh, and um, but that still hasn't dented my curiosity. I'm like, how would you, how how have they approached uh, adapting an anime into a live action? I'm still curious, and yeah. even if it's no good, the anime still exists, and um, I can always go back and enjoy that. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure the creator must have gotten some money for it. So, oh, you Yoko Kano definitely did. She was doing the score for the live action. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, I'm imagining also it couldn't have been cheap for Netflix. So maybe that was a factor. Although yeah. I have no idea what the budget of this was. If I don't know if they released budgets or not. And this was made during a pandemic in New Zealand and production had to be halted because John Cho suffered an injury. Uh, so it must have racked up a, a lot of money. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting decision considering they invested so much in it. And people who made it through to the end said there was potential for season two to build on something interesting but uh, we'll never know uh what do you think the chances of a live action cowboy bebop happening again are after this i don't know uh i mean it, it depends on how uh, the thing the 
so what what you just says that there is potential for a second season. I mean, you can say that about a lot of shows. A lot of shows that have a disappointing first season can you know reinvent themselves in the second season. In fact, you know that's that's it's not un, that uncommon because the first season is is a show finding itself, and then the second season. But it's just you know like now, especially with show like Cowboy Bebop and, you know, modern standards, at least in terms of production values, not necessarily narrative quality, but are high as they are for a science fiction show. It's it's a lot of money. It's a lot of risk for someone to take. So I can't imagine it being very high for either Netflix to revive it or someone else to pick it up because I don't see people, anybody uh, writing, a f- uh, starting a quote unquote fun fan letter campaign, like sometimes often do. Mm. Or starting a petition, so I, I don't see that happening. So it's 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 unlikely. Maybe in 50, another fifteen years, someone else will show interest and it will be done. But I, I just don't see the point. I suppose it's just much more cost effective to just like do what they did with Squid Game and uh, other Korean properties and like license something for global streaming. Yeah, I mean that's and you know and they, it's not like they're not doing that. So there's really not much to criticize here. Yeah. So yeah, Cowboy Bebop live action cancelled. Um, that's a shame, or that's good, depending upon how you feel about the show. Uh, um, in other news, um, like this week, we've seen um, the Japanese film Drive My Car win a slew of awards from like the New York Film Critics Circle, the LA Film Critics, and Boston Film Critics, uh, Chicago Film Critics groups, like uh, either Best Film or Best International Film, uh, and um, Earlier this month, or last month, I think it was announced as Japan's entry to the Academy Awards, uh, Best International Picture category. And um, we were talking about this off-air earlier this week, but uh, the only Japanese film to win in the category was the 2008 film Departures. So, Drive My Car... I I think it's the last film to win, not the only. I mean, Japan has won the best foreign film many times, right? Uh, Oh, gosh, I looked it up now. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm almost certain. Like it, it won in two thousand three, I think, with the uh, Twilight Samurai, or well, that was nominated. But it definitely like even Kurosawa won with uh, nineteen seventy five with Dersu Zala. Okay, but I think I think um, Departure was the last to win, not not the not only the to only. win. Yeah. So Departures. Uh. So to the Twilight Samurai was nominated. So I was wrong about that. Uh, Muddy River and Kagemusha were only nominated. Oh, you're right. No, you are you are correct. I apologize. So a lot have been nominated, mm. but not have won. The the several a few films in the fifties have uh, won honorary awards, but that was before the oh uh, was the the award was officially created. Mm. So you're interesting. I I I find that surprising. I thought I thought a lot of these films that were only nominated one, but apparently not. They were only nominated. So, yeah. Um, like Kwaidan and Woman in the Dunes. We'd have to go into detail as to the competition they were up against, because those two are brilliant films. Yeah, and Woman in the Dunes actually was nominated, I think, also for a... Let me double-check, because I don't want to... Uh, was always nominated for an, one a different category... Uh, in addition to best foreign film, I think it was one of the first ones for best director. Yes, so so Itachi Gahara the next year. So the one year 
uh, Woman in the Dunes, 1964, was nominated for Best Foreign Film. But then in 1965, apparently was nominated again for Best Director for Teshigahara. Yeah, uh, Criterion put out a collection of three of his films. Uh, Woman... Yeah, so... Yeah, okay. Pit- Pitfall, Woman in the Dunes, and uh, The Face the of Face Another. Of that, yeah. That's, that's sort of a, an unofficial trilogy that is bo- all based on either novels or scripts by Kobo Abe. Yeah, and yeah. also um, uh, scored by uh, what's the composer's name, Toru Takemitsu. Mm. I'm a huge fan of all three films. I've seen them many times, especially "Woman in the Dunes" and "The Face of Another" are fantastic, in my opinion. "Pitfall" was, uh, I was a bit less impressed uh, with it, but also great. But I, I recommend everyone to watch these three films. I haven't, I actually haven't seen any of the other any of uh, Tishigahara's other films, but my understanding is they're not as uh, as well recognized. They're not as well praised as these three. Uh, that's my understanding as well. He comes from like a family of Ikebana practitioners, and he's done a lot of documentaries on Ikebana, the art of Ikebana. Um, and uh, I have to admit, the only Teshigahara films I've watched are Pitbull, uh, Woman of Dunes, and The Face of Another. Yeah. So maybe in a future series of heroic poetry, we can cover those. Absolutely. All right. So anyway, that that was for the uh, Academy Awards. So what are the other news? Uh, right. Tokyo Godfathers uh, was added to uh, UK Netflix. And uh, in related news, and I mentioned this previously, the writer Keiko Nobumoto, uh, writer on uh, Cowboy Bebop, Cowboy Bebop the movie, Space Dandy, writer and creator of Wolf's Rain, and also writer for Tokyo Godfathers. She died on December 1st at the age of 57, and um, her death uh, prompted uh me to start rewatching some of her uh shows and also this episode which covers Tokyo Godfathers. Absolutely. Do you do you know the cause of death? Um I think it's esophageal cancer. Ah, okay. I was I was wondering if it was COVID related, but yeah, that's she, not. She's very prolific in the uh around the Cowboy Bebop era and um well, Work from her seemed to s- slow down, and she was only working with Shinichiro Watanabe, from what I understand. And she turned in some of the best episodes of Space Dandy. Uh, there's music in the darkness. Um, I can't remember the other one, but it's like uh, Space Dandy finds a dog abandoned on a planet, and like the first half of the episode is just utter heartbreak. And uh, yeah, like she died uh, at a young age. And uh, it's a talent that will be sorely missed, I'm sure. Absolutely. Okay, so oh, another thing that um, I just that was relevant in the uh, with the Academy Award item. So I think I briefly mentioned that Drive My Car was also nominated for a Best Foreign Film in the Golden Globes. Okay, yeah. And uh, another interesting uh, information or bit of news from the Golden Globes was that um, Squid Game was nominated for Best uh, TV Drama, I think. Uh, and actually, se- got several awards. So, I think best actor in a, in a in a drama, uh, wow. maybe best supporting actor as well. Some a few he got a few awards there. I, I I don't have the list in front of me, but that was interesting because I don't think many foreign uh, TV series get nominated. It sounds like a first for Korea. Certainly, first for Korea. Not a first for a foreign TV series. I think I think recently there have been a few. Yeah. Uh, in that category, I think uh, there's a couple of French or Danish shows that 
uh, have been kind of prominent in the American award circuit. And again, I, I think solely because of, you know, service like Netflix and Prime that uh, have this international production uh, spectrum that kind of allows for them to, uh, for a lot of, uh, you know, content from other countries to come into the U.S. as it otherwise would not. Yeah. All right. But I think that's it for our news segment. Uh, we can now jump straight into our uh, discussion of the film Tokyo Godfathers by Satoshi Kon, uh, who also is sadly not with us, although he died a while ago. Uh, Jason, why don't, as usual, why don't you give us a plot summary of the film? So, uh, Tokyo Godfathers was the third film directed by Satoshi Kon, a comedy co-written with Keiko Nobumoto. The film was inspired by the uh, 1948 John Ford, John Wayne Weston, Free Godfathers and transposes its story of three unlikely guardians of a newborn baby from the sun-scorched Arizona deserts and world of cowboys uh, to modern-day Tokyo during a bitterly cold winter experienced by three homeless people. The story begins on a bitterly cold Christmas Eve night as three homeless people find an abandoned baby in a trash pile while out foraging for food. These three homeless characters are a teenage runaway named Miyuki, a transgender woman named Hannah, and Gin, a self-proclaimed ex-bicycle racer who is now a middle-aged alcoholic. After naming the baby Kyoko, they attempt to return her to her parents, and in so doing, they step into another world filled with miracles, as their long trek across Tokyo is filled with seemingly random encounters with people and events that create patterns that force the three to confront their pasts and face the future, as Kyoko inspires the better qualities of these three characters to emerge. All right. Thank you for that summary, Jason. So actually, before we, we start discussing, do you remember what, what the rationale behind Kyoko is? They, when they give her that name, she translates what the symbols mean, but I forget. It's pure child. Pure child. Okay, because they find her on Christmas Eve or something, or Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas, Christmas Eve. Well, because the, 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 the story takes place primarily between Christmas and New Year's, and it ends right on New Year's Day, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, so what's what's your history with this film? When did you first watch it? And just to remind our audience a bit, we did talk about this in our last Christmas special, but it was part of a list. Uh, we didn't we didn't focus too much of it, so we might have already mentioned this, but why don't we repeat it now? So what's what's your history with this film? So yeah, I think uh, Satoshi Kon uh, was one of the major sort of anime auteurs of the early two thousands. Um, up there with Mamoru Oshii, um, Hayao Miyazaki, and uh, he actually made a sort of transition to uh, international acclaim. And um, I sort of first experienced his films with Perfect Blue, uh, which was on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and then I watched Paranoia Agents and. Uh, the next one I watched was Tokyo Godfathers, and Tokyo Godfathers is just like completely unlike um, Perfect Blue and Paranoia Agent in the sense that it felt more like, um, unlike those two titles, uh, which sort of blend like reality and nightmare and um, there's psychodrama uh, involved. Uh, this one's more of this one's like a a, a Christmas tale akin to um, uh, oh, what's that? The film, ah, oh, with the bank, are uh, we... So uh, which one? I'm blanking. Uh, George, George, he's going to commit suicide. The angel rescues him. It's a wonderful life. 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's another... it. Does yeah, that you're right. It does. It does have sort of a similar holiday vibe. Similar holiday vibe in the sense that it takes place over Christmas and it's a story of a rebirth and there's a lot of darkness and um, talk of death involved. Well, quite literally, because the one one character, spoiler alert, in the end wants to be reborn by suicide. So quite almost literally the same thing that uh, um, Jimmy Stewart's character, I forget his name, in the film. I'm sure, I'm sure it's George. Something like that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, eh, whatever. Uh, but yeah. Uh, okay, con- please continue if you... Yeah, and um, I think unlike um, Paranoia Agent, which is a TV anime, many episodes, and um, Perfect Blue, it's the one Satoshi Kon film I've actually managed to return to over the years because it has um, sort of uh, an uplifting message to it, which is uh, about reaffirming ties with others uh, and overcoming obstacles in life. And yeah, uh, I really like this one out of the ones that I've seen. Uh, his works and it ended up being uh my number one christmas film last year i think okay oh okay interesting so uh for me this was like i mentioned last time it was the first time that i watched it and in preparation for this episode was the second time that i watched it and um just like in similar to your experience with it it is a bit of an unusual film because of the expectation that one goes in into a Satoshi Kon film, because he's mostly known for Perfect Blue, Paprika, and Paranoia Agent, which are very unlike, uh, totally unlike uh, Tokyo Godfathers, and I suspect Millennium Actors, although I have not seen that film. Uh, no, I, I've got it on DVD, but I haven't actually watched it. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be sort of a loose adaptation on Setsuko Hara's life or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but I've not seen it. I suspect it's similar vibe that is not essentially to put it crudely. It's not a weird. It's not weird. Uh, like uh, Perfect Blue, Paprika, which is pa- Perfect Blue is the film that I've seen most of his. It's just a film that I revisit very often. It's I, I enjoy it, even though I it's unlike Tokyo Godfathers. I don't think it's necessarily uplifting. Mm. Uh, Paranoia Agent. I've only seen clips. I haven't. I don't think I've seen uh, um, uh, any episode in full. But I sort of, I've, from reading about it, I have a gist of what it is about. Yeah, it's um, episodic in nature, although the overarching story is the pursuit of a guy with a baseball bat who attacks people at their greatest moment of crisis. And you've got a collection of Tokyoites who um, are affected by this person and two detectives who are chasing him down. And uh, it soon envelops the entire city of Tokyo. And it it sort of looks at all the ways that um, there are systemic failures or like um, cultural pressures on people that b- break down the characters. But uh, yeah, I'm also seeing that he worked on a few episodes of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah, this, uh, I think it's the 1995 uh, yeah, one. Yeah, 93. 93, yeah. Which I can't imagine uh, is anything. I think he just he was just a, a director for hire on that one, so he probably just is probably not anything that he injected much of his own personal style in it. It's certainly not as bombastic as the uh, recent JoJo's by David Productions. Interesting. I've I've I haven't seen either one, so I have no idea what it is. Yeah, um, the best way to describe JoJo's Bizarre Adventures is like Indiana Jones crossed with WWE and uh, <laughs> I don't know a vampire movie. <laughs> 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, sound, sounds uh, fascinating in many ways. But I think the one thing about um, going back to Tokyo Godfathers is that it's not only uh, more uplifting than some of his other stuff, uh, but it's also, you know, in terms of narrative, it's the most traditional, you know, three-story arc structure type of film or story that he's done, you know, because certainly Paprika and, uh, and Perfect Blue are not like that at all. Or at least they're, they, they're a lot more experimental, shall we say, than, than Tokyo Godfathers, which is, you know, a, more conventional. That's nothing to say negative about it, but it's, it's a lot more conventional. And I think maybe a lot more accessible to someone who might not particularly take to what Satoshi Kon has been most famous for. I think um, during the production of Millennium Actress, he was asked what type of film he'd like to do next. And to do, uh, to put it bluntly, a straight film like Tokyo Godfathers was seen as a challenge because he previously done all of these films that uh, transcended genre boundaries and um, mixed reality and fantasy together. He'd done two films prior to that that d- did those things. And that was what he was, his uh, work was recognized as becoming. And uh, yeah, he, sort of restricted himself with Tokyo Godfathers to making something a bit more realistic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, as though he wanted to cleanse himself of the realism, he went to do Paranoia Agent and Paprika right after. Yeah. So so I guess perhaps he didn't like the process very much. Who knows? I, uh, Paprika was like a, a long-held uh, dream project that he wanted to do, but he could only do it after um, Tokyo Godfathers. And you see that there's an increase in budget from Perfect Blue to Millennium Actress to Tokyo Godfathers. I've seen Paprika twice. And if you ask me to describe it to you or tell you what it's about, about I would not be able to, to do it. Okay. So that's not even an elevator pitch? No, not at all. It's a very bizarre, uh, sort of a very bizarre, both visually and in terms of the story in it, a very bizarre film. In general, although enjoyable, I, I I had fun watching it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, Tokyo Godfathers is not that at all. Like I said, it's very traditionally structured, very accessible to anyone, and actually, it's a very you know heartwarming story. Uh, but it's sort of before we talk about the film in general, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about the characters, uh, because I, I had an interesting revelation uh, in this second watch. And the first time that I watched it last, last year, and it was solely because it was on your list, because uh, I was not familiar with the film, and I, I mentioned at the time, if I remember correctly, I said this might be one of my favorite animated films or one of my favorite Japanese films, because I was so impressed by it. And that's still mostly true. That's still entirely true, actually. Uh, it's a really, really well-done story in many aspects. And, uh, but I think at the time, the poetry of sort of the whole the whole film did not allow me to view the characters very carefully or to examine the characters of the film very carefully in this second rewatch i kind of i kind of didn't like the characters as much not not didn't like the characters the way they were written just didn't like their personality they're all kind of not necessarily bad people but they're not innocent by a, by a long stretch essentially they're kind of they're kind of scumbags in their own way like the let me take each of them by example so the the transgender woman whose name i forget hannah yeah she right away completely ignores what is the right thing for the baby and the right thing the legal thing and it simply gives in to her selfish desire of having a child 
without thinking of the circumstances in which we, which you will have to like keep that child, even if it for a limited time. I mean, she lives outside in the cold, or, or in a cardboard box or something. I forget, like a sort of a makeshift home that they've made of out of cardboard boxes. Is that right? Yeah, it's like plastic sheeting, cardboard. Exactly. They don't. They don't have the means to sustain the baby. They don't have the uh, the nutrition, the proper. It's nutrient. the middle of winter. It's this veritable blizzard. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's a miracle that they can afford to buy water in that first night. Uh, but um, the the guy, the 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 man, who what's Gin. his name? Gin. Gin. Okay. I, I I kept calling him Jin, which I thought he was ironic because he was a bit of an alcoholic. <laughs> Uh, but uh, he lies straight up lies about his uh, background. He says he's a uh, he was a racer that had an accident that uh, that uh, because his child was sick and blah blah blah. But he just he was just a drunk and a gambler. Mm. There's no uh, there's no two ways about it. And you know the 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 girl, um, what's her name? Miyuki. Miyuki. Yes. Okay. Hopefully I'll remember them from now on. But the girl was you know if I. I Unless I miss something, she stabs her dad because her cat ran away? Yeah. That's Was there more it. to that story? <laughs> yeah, that's essentially it. But yeah, and that's there's... terrible. Uh, yeah. Um... Now, don't get me wrong. I don't, that, those do not make the movie worse. They, actually, in my opinion, they make the movie better for, for, I think, reasons that maybe we'll get into. But they are, I think they're not... I was very amazed by how much I loved these characters the first time that I watched this film. How much, how much, how much sorry I felt for them the first time. But yeah. the second time, I just stoop, took a step back and said, "Wait a minute! These are terrible people. Not, not they're not irredeemable. They're people. all entirely selfish. Yeah, entirely selfish. So I don't know if you kind of agree with that. If you had a different take on these characters, uh, yeah, in some ways they're symbolic of sort of like pressures on uh different." groups of people like uh, Miyuki feels like she like in the scene where you see her stab her father she's like you never listen to me and you can read that as like she's emblematic of you know Japanese women who are sort of uh ignored or used by the patriarchy that that's that's entirely a tr a valid interpretation but I'm not sure if it's because you know I mean she's a kid what what how many parents actually you know or you could read her as an entirely self-absorbed teenager who's like, yeah, my cat? like you know, I mean, I, I'm, you know, my parents didn't take me that seriously because I was a kid. I was stupid, you know. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, I wanted things that were not reasonable. That's what kids. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what kids do. Well, no, that's the process of growing up. You you stop yeah. being so self-centered, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm not saying your interpretation is not valid. It could be valid because we kind of see the the mother hiding hiding sort of in the back is not intervening, and I guess you could maybe you could see some symbolism in there. I mean, it's it's definitely there. I don't know that it is. It might be a bit of a stretch to to sort of read too much into it, but it's you know there are there are societal implications that can be read into that. Yeah, there's also like Hannah. She's got abandonment issues um, because she, as a child, her mother left her on the streets. And there's Gin, who um, like he's dropped out of society because he's taken on a massive debt. It's his own fault, and he's abandoned his family. So they are entirely selfish people, and yet they're the godfathers of the child. It turns out it's the other way around because Kyoko is bringing out, like, forcing them to look at their selfish actions. And to actually confront them, and over the course of like so many nights, they encounter characters from their past, and they have to sort of reconcile their current states with uh, like how they got to their current 
themselves with the, how they got to their current states. And so it's kind of like an uplifting story in the sense that like they're in a really terrible position and they've come from bad backgrounds, but they're able to salvage something out of their lives and experience a rebirth. Absolutely. And I think, I think it is, they do definitely improve. They definitely grow in the short span of sort of that the movie takes place. They definitely reflect on their mistakes. And, you know, it, it's, it, the, the film doesn't take the easy way to say that, oh, they, they lived happily ever after. We don't know what happens ever after. Maybe sort of they repeat the mistakes or maybe they do, but they definitely sort of gives them the opportunity to reflect on themselves and, you know, gives them the chance to grow. And, you know, maybe they'll take it, maybe they're not, but that's what, you know, real life is all about. It's it's about, you know, trying to try to see and examine the chances that people often get or, you know, sometimes don't get. Yeah, it's that constant struggle to try and fit in with a family unit. And they themselves have formed a family unit when we see them at the start of the film. And it's rock solid at the end, but they're they're given a sort of second chance to reconnect with their original families, but it's it's never clear cut as to how that will go. For example, Gin uh, dis- uh, reconnects with his daughter, but there's no suggestion that he'll get back with his wife. That maybe the wife's moved on without him. So it's kind of like it's not as simple as resetting the nuclear family of like uh, two parents and a child, like a father and a mother and a child. It yeah. doesn't take that easy route. No, absolutely. And just to, to go a little bit of digression, when he tells the story to Hana about his accident and all the medical bills, the first, and that drives her to tear or something, but the first thought that popped into my head was, doesn't Japan have universal healthcare? Yeah. Like, you wouldn't have any medical bills, especially for, you know, an accident like that. Like, it's not like I'm, I can imagine some elective surgery or cosmetic surgery being... Uh, being expensive, but otherwise it should be all covered. So I don't know <laughs> why yeah, he, I focused into that. He claims he um, sort of uh, threw a race uh, based on the uh, uh, suggestion by Yakuza that he could make a lot of money and that he did so because he wanted to pay for his daughter's medical bills. Although his daughter's, yeah, sorry, I said I said his own, but yeah, it's his. It was his daughter's medical expenses that he uh, he wanted to pay. Yeah, and it turns out it's a complete and utter lie. It's just that yeah. he, he took out a loan, which is not uncommon in Japan, but uh, he got in too deep with loan sharks, and uh, he disappeared from society, and uh, becoming homeless was that process of disappearing. Yeah, but again, I, I sort of feel like Hannah should have said, wait a minute, what what medical bills? Yeah, I, oh, Hannah, I suppose you can say she's a, a complete and utter romantic. Yeah, that that's certainly true. Yeah, no doubt about that. And she does... Love Gin. Yes, yes. Uh, but going going back to you know the the film doesn't take the easy why the easy way out, and I think that's I think why what I like about the fact that they are the kind of people that they're presented to be. Because I think I think the first time I was watching this too much, you know, from the from the side of homelessness, and you know, thinking that yeah, you know, it is too easy to like, and especially you know in the U.S. for instance, a lot of people are one or two paychecks away from becoming homeless and that sort of i think maybe maybe we talked this about in other episodes in uh uh maybe the nomad lad episode yeah uh and maybe even in the last christmas special when we briefly talked about this movie that how easy it is and you know people who are have otherwise done nothing wrong and you know through no um, nothing nothing that was in their sort of a personal agency ended up homeless and i think that's the angle that i was looking for but that's not what the film presents the film presents people who have done things wrong 
And even though in a cynical take might say that they sort of, in, in objective terms, they deserve to be homeless, only in, not, not deserve in a moral sense, but deserve in, only in a cause and effect sense, that their actions directly cause their homelessness. But I think that's, that's a harder, that's a more realistic and not, not, I don't know how to say this so, so I, I, I can make my point across clearly, but that's, that's a, a, a more nuanced view of human nature that we're not, you know, it's easy to show someone who is a perfect angel and just, you know, beaten by fate and taken to the streets through no fault of their own. But that's a very melodramatic story. Like a, a more, I think a more realistic story is someone who is a flawed human being and, and who has made, or human beings who have made mistakes and show them able to sort of overcome their mistakes and learn from them, that I think that is the more, the more important story and the more powerful story than just, you know, a melodrama about how innocent people have fallen into hard times, how society is unfair to them and all that, which is, you know, not necessarily a, a wrong message, but it is, you know, a, kind of an overdone message, a very too, too melodramatic message, whereas this is, I think, more appropriate and I think more more complicated in a, in a good way from a you know from a filmmaking perspective and also from a more moral perspective that you know not everybody's perfect people make mistakes and just it doesn't mean that they don't deserve to sort of the opportunity to learn from those mistakes and to grow from those mistakes yeah and like it, these characters presents a sort of humanistic face too um very real problems in japan just to go back to again there are so many like homeless men like him who they've accrued debts or maybe they haven't been able to make it up the career ladder they like during the uh economic bubble period um they went to the cities to work and they didn't invest their money wisely or they didn't get married so when the bubble burst they found themselves like trapped in um terrible accommodations and you know, gradually aging and uh not being able to sustain themselves and then eventually becoming homeless yeah and he could have been, you know, the film doesn't go into this, but he could also have been a victim of predatory lending, which is not not uncommon in Japan. Yep, that's uh, Yakuza deeply involved in that, and um, it's it's his own fault that he was uh, spending so much time on the tracks, betting money and uh, drinking so much. And the film forces him to, well, the events of the film force him to confront that. So I'm, uh, I kind of sort of last, uh, I was fascinated by the time by the title of this film uh just jumping into a slightly different topic and you know it's called tokyo godfathers and the term godfathers is obvious but i'm wondering what's the significance of tokyo in in this and i think maybe you just did touch on it but I was, as i'm less familiar with japan as you are i wonder you know why isn't this what's you know is there something special about tokyo in this story could it could this just been easily osaka godfathers or okinawa godfathers or, or i don't hiroshima know hiroshima godfathers hiroshima godfathers is there something special about tokyo that that you know the movie couldn't sort of exist without that is there anything that you can sort of say about that I suppose, uh, like the setting of Tokyo, like Tokyo itself is like New York or London. It's a city that's drawn so many people to it and it's got, uh, diverse, uh, diversity in different areas. And, um, it's also got a significant homeless population and, uh, the gap between rich and poor can be, um, not necessarily, it's not always obvious, but when it is, it's obscene. And, um, you know, I think you see it that in the opening shots of the film, it takes place in a Shinjuku Park, and you've got the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building towering in the background, and then you've got this homeless encampment. Um, like 
it, it, and like in a park, um, overshadowed by it. And, uh, it's not uncommon in like big parks like Yoyogi or in areas like Akihabara, just, just set it away, just set the site of the public that you would see homeless encampments or Ueno Park, which is, uh, a, a famous area. Loads of tourists flock there. Once it gets to 10 o'clock, homeless people are rocking up at different areas, putting out their mats, um, because, you know, that's the safest place or it's a place of running water. So it's like a setting where you can talk about the wealth of the area, uh, as, and, um, the poverty that exists in the shadows and the different characters drawn there. Is, is, uh, the homelessness problem in Tokyo sort of unique to Tokyo, uh, or is it, is it all over Japan? How's, what's, what's homelessness like in Japan? I guess my question is. It's not immediately obvious because it's hidden away at the backs of parks, under bridges. Like the most obvious, uh, places I saw it, um, were uh, like, uh, in Osaka, um, in areas that were being gentrified for tourists. So, uh, like cheap hotels. Uh, and outside the hotels, you would have, um, uh, homeless people. Um, like the problem has been, uh, with redevelopment, the problem has been shrinking, but they're still there. And you've also got like, uh, low income housing for people who are uh, living on government subsidies. Uh, in Tokyo itself, like I said earlier, like in uh, Yoyogi Park towards the back in the quiet areas, you will see homeless encampments, uh, along riversides and under bridges. Uh, in other areas, you don't see it so much, especially, uh, it's, it's not so obvious. So I think a setting like Osaka, Tokyo, it's much, it's a bit more obvious. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you definitely need, uh, from a different aspect of this film, you definitely need it. I mean, I don't know about Tokyo specifically, but you definitely need a huge city like Tokyo because, you know, it just makes the coincidences that happen in this film a lot more incredible. This is well. This is a side of Tokyo that we don't actually see very often because they go to the eastern parts, um, Kinshicho, which is more a residential area, and then they go to Roppongi uh, around Tokyo Tower, which is like a kind of clubland, and um, Shinagawa, which is a, a little bit more industrial, and then back to Shinjuku. So, if you're watching this film, you'll get a good idea of what life in Tokyo in less glamorous parts is like. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, uh, first of all, I mean, only so there's a special kind of indifference that exists in big cities where, you know, three homeless people with a baby uh, can walk around and nobody would uh, bat an eye. You also see, like, the reactions of people to the homeless when yeah, they're around. Or, like, well. uh, yeah, so a filled train and one of them has not washed or bathed in, like, forever. Yeah, uh, and it's just everybody just holding their nose. For every, first of all, I thought it was like a masks because of the, it was not uncommon even before the pandemic for people in various regions of a Asia to wear face masks. Yeah. So I thought everybody was holding their shirt because they forgot their mask, and then he hit me. Oh no! So one of these people smell really bad. Yeah, um, and it is noticeable. Like when you're on a train uh, or you're in a convenience store, and someone who's homeless enters, uh, you know, like. It does. The smell does hit you, and you see people sort of recoil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, again, so again, the, the, if if it was a smaller town, sort of all the coincidences that happen throughout the film, especially in the second half, are you know would not be as incredible as they are in a huge place like Tokyo, where they just happen to to stumble into the right into the into the right people. So you know, uh, what what are there? The, so the they find like I, at least a couple of times they find gin in like 
like, you know, she goes back to her bar and Jin happens to be there or Gin happens to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Like he gets attacked by those uh, young men who are going out drinking and uh, he stumbles into an alleyway that just happens to be where Hannah used to work. Yeah, exactly. And the Yakuza that they find under the car happens to be the father of a girl who is marrying the one that Gin owned, owned money to. Yeah. And, uh, and then they happen to be the employers of the girl whom they suspect is a mother to the, to the baby that they found, who is actually turns out not to be a mother. Yeah. And, uh, and then the, the, the hospital that they go to turns, to, turns out to have a, a nurse who happens to be the daughter of Gin. And Miyuki sees her father on the train. On the train and then finally on the hospital. And he is a social worker? What is he exactly doing He's there? He's a police like, d- detective. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so yeah, like uh, in a small village, like this is a film of coincidences. And in a small village, it would just be way too far-fetched. But actually in a city where you've got all these elements moving around. Like in the film Ninja Girl. Where, you know, like she lives in a tiny town where everybody knows everybody. And yeah. for like, I'm just not, I mean, that film has nothing to do with this, but I'm just, that's the first one that came to mind was like a Japanese film with like a, a very small town setting where everybody knows everybody. I mean, that sort of thing would not be remarkable there. But in Tokyo, it's extremely sort of adds to sort of the, the, the magic of the whole, uh, sort of what the film is trying to convey. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, the, I, the sort of in, in spirit, similar, like the connection with the term Godfather, which I said I'm fascinated by the title of this. And, you know, there's religious elements of a Godfather and Godmother and uh, the one. Uh, but there's also a, like a very practical sense, which if I and someone can correct me if this is not accurate, but I believe the original practical purpose of Godparents was that if something happened to the real parents, the get the godparents sort of take care of the the children, right? Yeah, it's like their award. Exactly, uh, and and sort of that's you know in the literal sense that's what the three homeless protagonists of the film that's the role that they assume here. But it's also somewhat a reversal because the presence of the child of uh, Kyoko it almost almost takes care of them by leading them through paths that apparently didn't happen before like all these coincidences had had to happen in these very short span of five days yeah uh but it you know it sort of in a symbolic sense or even in a religious sense kyoko kind of led them into it so it's almost like she was uh temporarily a godfather to them because she led them to the right path in in a very very crude sense but i think that's that's kind of meant to be an interpretation or you could see her as like a, like an angel herself, like she's a messenger from God, who's guiding yes. them. And that's constantly sort of Hannah constantly um, calls her that she is an angel and she is uh, protected, blessed by God, protected by God. How does she exactly put it? I can't remember. Because she's nothing bad happens to her. Like she's abandoned in the like cold. God smiles on her. Yeah. What was that? God smiles on her. Something yeah, like something that. like that. Yeah, and and yeah, but so. The, um, the sort of like she she ends up abandoned and nothing happens to her and she uh, then in the end they fall from the building and you know the wind just happens to blow in the right moment yeah and they and just lifts the flag the big what what's that thing called it's like a banner 
a banner, yes, and they just happen to land perfectly in the right as the 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 sun of the new day of the new year, in fact, sort of yeah, like it shines on them, shines on them. So it's a pretty dramatic ending, but I guess it, it kind of fits with the the climax of the film. Oh, and Kyoko, like to her sort of uh, supposed mother, says, "I I want to go home." Like, like yeah, I, that, I mean, I, I interpret that as a hallucination or sort of like a, a delirious moment right at the end. Yeah. Or you could interpret it as something really religious going on. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. But yeah, I think I definitely, I definitely think the film is sort of, you know, it's very lighthearted and it's also very humorous at times, especially in the interactions between uh, Hana and Gin or Jin. <clears throat> Gin. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know. I just it's Jin. There's something about it that just <laughs> sounds so much better. But it's but all the alcohol, I, baby. <laughs> yeah, I refer, I defer to your. Uh, to your expertise on the subject. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's, you know, she is just, she's can't, it's almost like she doesn't want to love him or she loves hating him. Something along those lines where she kind of relishes in the contradiction between how she, for how she feels that character. Well, yeah, you hear from other homeless characters that, uh, Gin thinks the world of Miyuki and, uh, that's why they don't mess with her. And uh, there's like a, a sort of father-daughter, like they, they are a makeshift family. There's a father-daughter aspect to it. And he's a goofy father and she's a rebellious daughter. And the, uh, he calls, he keeps calling um, uh, Hana, she keeps referring to as a homo, yeah. meaning homosexual. And I don't know if that's him just in, trying to insult her, obviously not mean-spirited, or if you're just, you know, in 2003 people didn't distinguish that much because she's clearly a transgender or a transsexual woman depending on exactly where the line is i wonder if you because back then like i sort of remember we didn't people did not especially lay people didn't make that big of a distinction between the sort of the various categories of the lgbt category lgbt denominations but uh or if he was knew that she was a transgender but she just kind of like didn't bother or something like that i think at the time like uh Various people looked at her as um, either a cross-dresser or a drag queen. And um, like with the march of time, with a bit more understanding, uh, we, would regard, we now regard her as transgender. And um, there are many elements in the film where she's like, yeah, I'm a woman, like at the very end. No, yeah, but even actually in the very beginning, it's actually she's actually making literally saying what so today we consider the definition of transgender, where she says, uh, "I'm a woman. God just made a mistake giving me a penis, or something, something along those lines." Which yeah. is, you know, like precisely like in modern speech, how we define that that sort of that group of people, or you know, like people who are in a in a body that has a sex contrary to what identify. Yeah, she complains about being put in the men's ward of a hospital, and that's like a, a raging debate in society right now. How yeah. So the film was definitely aware that she's not just a homosexual; that there's something more to her personality. So I'm, I'm that's why I'm kind of wondering why Gin calls her that because Gin clearly, Gin and, you know, Gin and Hannah show a sort of, I suppose you could term them as progressive attitudes, and it's probably like a, a sort of. <laughs> Perhaps a more realistic depiction about how people were perceived back I, then. I, I suppose because I don't think Gin is being bigoted. No, you know, it's I think just casual. There's clearly a loving relationship between the two, yeah. right? I think I think you know, but and again, I'm you know, uh, 
it's 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 perhaps a movie that uh, at least in the Western world you, they, they wouldn't be used that term. But I don't. I'm not saying that's wrong that they use it. I'm just trying to understand his personality. No, it's just casual between all three of them. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and clearly, I mean, they they clearly have a very loving relationship. Although they have this, what what I like to call loving antagonism, maybe yeah. a little bit more than antagonism, because you know the moment I love that scene, the moment when she finds out that he's been lying about his backstory with the daughter, it feels like she loves the fact that now she can just like berate him about it, yeah. right? Where she has that like 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 that fit in the hospital right in front of his daughter, yeah. And like she just kind of calls him pretty much every name in the book because she's had to endure an entire lifetime. Yeah, it feels like she was just waiting for that. Yeah, but then later on she says, you know, like that's you know, I, clearly she did not ha- have any malice in it. She thought she, you know, she did it to kind of help and make things more transparent between father and daughter while also enjoying shouting at Gin because that's, I guess, part of their their sexual or or friend. Uh, uh, friendship back and forth or whatever it is that they have. Yeah, if like she says, if you're in a loving relationship, you can speak freely and the daughter should be able to accept that. Yeah. And, you know, it, like from what the hints that we get later on, it did. In fact, you know, both Gin and Hannah, it seems to sort of have made uh, terms with their past. You know, Gin, we get the sense that he is reconnected with his daughter and he's going to continue to see her. Uh, what's her name? Um, Hannah. What's the name of the bar that she worked in? Uh, I can't remember the bar. It was like a singing karaoke, like a like a nightclub kind like of place. A, a hostess club. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. And that's the type of thing you would find in Shinjuku itself. Okay, interesting. A, like, there's the hint that she's now welcome. She was fearful to go there because she left in bad terms, but uh, uh, now, uh, now, uh, She's welcome back. And if, going back to Gin, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's another one of the big uh, unbelievable coincidences that his debtor, his creditors died like just a couple of years after he disappeared. Mm. So like all their problems go magically away. The only one that we don't necessarily get closure, although I think it may be implied, is Miyoko. Or, uh, Miyuki. Yeah. Miyuki, sorry. Uh, because, you know, we see in the end her father... Uh, see her but then the movie ends right there so we don't necessarily get it although i think it's sort of implied that she too will be able to get closure yeah it's like um everybody's in their proper place once again thanks to kyoko being reunited with her parents the whole journey to reunite with the parents and like even though the father was stabbed by miyuki he's always trying his hardest to find his daughter yeah well, I, I wasn't clear or not whether she was aware of that, or she just becomes recently aware in you know, the span of the movie when she finally sees her father on the train. Yeah, that's she's living in fear because he's an authority figure and she's totally defied him. And then when she sees him on the train, that's when the ice sort of starts to break. Yeah, well, that end when she sees on newspaper the ad, the classified ad that he's put, yeah, that he's she assumes it's from her father. I think, and she's just a kid, you know. As soon as she figures out that you know her, her parents are not mad at her, she'll you know she'll go back home. I think it's I think that's a fairly uh, safe assumption. Safe assumption, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I think I think we every each of the characters get closed. It doesn't mean that their life are going to be like I said in the beginning; they're going to be happy ever after. It means that they did look back at sort of their mistakes, and I think that's the power of the film that it doesn't condemn them because they did bad things and were bad people 
well, I think that's a loaded term, but they just did bad things. They behave selflessly. It doesn't condemn them. It gives them the chance to redeem themselves. And they, you know, they have taken the first steps to redemption. You know, maybe they'll go the full way, maybe not, but that's that's what life is all about. Yeah. And so many Christmas films, it's like that desperation to get a second chance. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. And um, so go, going to the reception of the film, from what I understand, this was a very well-received film at the time of its release, although I haven't read much about, you know, how much it made in the box office and all that. Uh, do you have any more information on that? I don't have any exact numbers, but it seems it did well enough in the box office that um, Satoshi Kon was able to move on to other projects like Paprika. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And of course, it was it was not nominated for any. I looked up the awards. It was not nominated for any Japanese Academy Awards, which is uh, a bit strange because this is you know I can imagine how his most uh, um, surreal films probably are are a bit outside of that purview. But this one is a fairly conventional film that sounds like it should have been, but I guess it wasn't. But it was nominated for the Tokyo Anime Awards. Yeah, uh, a bunch of them. Japan Media Arts Festival Excellence Awards, Mainichi Film Awards, Best Animation Film. Yeah, which is a, film. A, an old one, right? Mm. The Mainichi so, Film Conquers or something like that. Yeah, prestigious newspaper awards. Yeah. So, and uh, it was screened in uh, plenty of foreign uh, territories as well. So like, this was like one of the films that helped uh, Satoshi Kon establish himself. Uh, any in international film festival circuit. His most well-known uh, film is Perfect Blue, maybe because of the Aronofsky connection. Uh, yeah, Black Black Swan. Yeah, yeah, but if General Aronofsky has been so very vocal about his appreciation for that film, even outside the context of Black Swan, but I don't think that film was very much circulated in the US before Tokyo Godfather. The thing is, after Tokyo Godfather, that people went back and kind of discovered that. I, I could be wrong about that, but that seems to be my recollection. Uh, I, well, I, uh, from what I remember, like um, Perfect Blue was the first film released in the UK, and that was around the time of was Japanese release. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, there was an awareness of him as an author at the time. Okay, okay, but maybe not as popular as uh, as he was. After the release of this film, probably not. No, I can I can imagine this one, which is you can say much more of a crowd pleaser, uh, bringing him an even bigger audience. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, just to sort of uh, lace it back to Keiko Nobumoto. I think it's one of those um, like she's really good at creating really complex characters who, on the surface, uh, you 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 can hate, but by the end of the film, you totally sympathize with. Uh, and like, uh, if we go back to Cowboy Bebop, Sympathy for the Devil, where the antagonist is this like monstrous kid with supernatural powers, but once you get his backstory and the tragedy of the gate explosion and how he was kept in like a, a research facility, and then like that ending, it's heartbreaking. And again, with uh, just to go back to Space Dandy, uh, the episode there's music in the darkness. Uh, Ukulele Man is uh, a horrific creation, but by the end of the show, you're crying <laughs> because because of his fate, and he you know he just wanted connection with other people. And I think what Keiko Nobumoto is able to do is just to humanize her characters, really dig deep into the sense of isolation um, felt by people, and then use that to totally turn our perspective on them. 
Yeah, it sounds like without having examining her contributions to any of her works, it sounds from what you're saying or and from what those episodes are like in this film was like is she likes to play with sort of the darker side and trying to show that it's not absolute. It's it's there is a you know, once you examine sort of the the causal relationship, there is a, a much more complicated story to be told in even the darker creations or the darker people or the the most unfortunate people. Yeah. Yeah, she she finds the humanity and even like the biggest monsters. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course, the, the the ones here are not the biggest monsters. But I mean, kind of she does because we have the yakuza. The yakuza are kind of, you know, kind of goofily portrayed. Yeah, as especially the big boss is <laughs> trapped. On, he's like so red in the face. I, I laughed out loud in that scene, and how the the other lady with the dog just pushes the car and just doesn't even stop to notice. Yeah, I, I, the son-in-law is this really horrible guy who's just talking about using and abusing women. But then there's that flash of loyalty to his boss where he takes the bullets. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a very confusing scene because the Gin is trying to attack him. Mm. And he is kind of rushing towards him as well. And then we find out that it's not to attack to attack Gin back, but to protect his boss. Yeah. It's, it's kind of uh, like... It's, yeah, it, well, I mean, the film is just well directed in general, like from a from a you know classically classically well what we consider classically well direction in sort of live action film. This film does that very very well. Yeah, the visual cues and the way the it links with the dialogue is fantastic. Such as where Hannah's Hannah and Miyuki are walking on the bridge and they're talking about committing suicide, and in the background <laughs> on another plane you see a woman like stepping onto the railings of a bridge. And uh, it's yeah, you've got all of like brilliant camera movement, which just sort of directs your eyes to where the action is going to be happening. All right. Uh, what did you think of the final, the the end theme of the film? Oh, to joy, is it? Oh, is it? I I honestly did not pay that much attention to it. I mean, if it's uh, let me let me try to recollect. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I'm not a big fan. Was not a big fan of the. And theme to this film. There was, yeah, there was some, some. I think the soundtrack worked well, but it wasn't uh, like throughout, not just the end theme, but throughout the movie. There was some sort of traditional Christmas, you know, s sounds and music, and there was some original sounds. Like uh, there was like a, I think a more fast paced song that kind of played in the car chase scene. Mm -hmm. I believe, uh, kind of that. I, I noticed that a little bit, but I thought it was nothing. I, I think that's, you know, uh, that is. I think the mark of a, a very effective soundtrack is that it doesn't, it kind of accompanies the scene, but it doesn't overshadow the scene. And I think that film, the soundtrack of this film, for the most part, kind of followed that pattern. Mm. Yeah, just to, just to go back to that scene, it's a very realistic chase scene as well. And the way they do uh, little comedic things to um, uh, put some frills and spills into it, such as uh, when the woman's running with the baby and she's shouting help and the and the guy opens the door and knocks out two of the characters. Just yeah, a hilarious sort of Kitano style moment. Yeah, um, it's actually there's a bit of a, a I guess there is hinted, but there's a bit of a shock when the uh, Miyuki is following up the stairs to that building, uh, the the fake mother, mm. and she gradually takes off her coat and her scarf and all that, and how much weight she's lost since the flashback. Yeah, she was like a very chubby teenager, and then in the in the present, obviously, being homeless will do that to you. Yeah, uh, but uh, but uh, you know, it's I mean, it kind of you can sort of maybe tell. Yeah, that was very well done. 
Yeah, and uh, speaking of more coincidences, the driver is the same as in the previous scene. The boon, you know, those yeah. three, that, that woman, Hannah, is the boon of his existence for the, the holidays. I, I like and, my guys with square haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, she know he, she's clearly not paying him, she's clearly not tipping him, and in the end she ends up even ruining his car, hopefully yeah. with insurance. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, this, this, this film could only work in animation as well. Like, if you tried to do this in live action, it would just be too miserable. Yeah. Well, you know, cue a couple of years later, uh, let's see what Netflix does. <laughs> okay. Nah. They would never, I don't, I don't see Satoshi Kon as a marketable name. <clears throat> and his films, I mean, they're, they're highly respected films, but they don't have sort of the, the marketing value of, of something like Cowboy Bebop or Akira, which has been in sort of, he talks about live action remakes forever. Yeah, like um, I, apart from re-releases of uh, oh no, this uh, Tokyo Godfathers did get a sort of re-release a couple of years ago actually uh, with a new English language sound uh, dub. But yeah, well, I mean there are co- smaller company. Uh, like, do you mean uh, uh, in the theaters or in in home media? Home media. Yeah, I mean, there will always be, you know, specialty companies that will, you know, really. I mean, even more, a lot more obscure films get releases and re-releases I, that I, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is necessarily the popularity to attract the attention of the any of the big production companies that are in hollywood although maybe i don't know I'm, i can i can say that that that's the case for sure yeah all right so any anything else yeah no it's just uh this is uh, a perfect christmas film uh this, uh, probably satoshi khan's most rewatchable film as well I, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a great f- Christmas film. I mean, there are many, so so you know, it definitely has a lot of competition mm. uh, in terms of being Christmas film. But it is Satoshi Kon's most rewatchable film, and it is you know a, a very uplifting film, despite all the the dark corners that exist within it. Mm. Yeah, you, you can definitely sort of make an anime fan out of people by introducing them to this film, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this would have definitely fit well in our first season theme about gateway films. Yeah. Because it is a very good gateway film for animation and maybe even Japanese cinema. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the the Tokyo that it describes is very realistic. But thanks to animation, it makes it a little more fantastical and dreamlike. Yes. So you can believe all those coincidences happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the sort of the fantastical aspect. I think that there's just, it, this is, it's a very fine interweaving of those elements that kind of make it work. That mm-hmm. is, you know, real, just, it's just, of the, it's realistic, but just with a, with a toe on the line of the fantastic to make, you know, especially the ending, like really land very well, you know, the, the moment, sort of the miracle, quote unquote, where she lands from that building yeah. uh, safe and unscathed. Definitely. So, yeah, it's a it's a great film, and I hope people now that it's on Netflix in the UK and possibly the US, I hope people take the opportunity to watch it this Christmas season. Absolutely, it's actually not not available in the US. Uh-huh. Uh It was the only place that I could find to stream it is Hoopla, and uh, Hoopla is a place that you can. I don't know if you can pay for it, but I get access through my public library. Hmm. But that was the only place that it streamed. So if you're in the US, look there. If you're in the UK, obviously look on Netflix and Prime, you said. I'm not sure about Amazon Prime, but definitely Tokyo Godfather's on Netflix. Okay, that's great. 
but yeah, so th- th- those are the places. Uh, and of course, it was available to rent and buy for a lot of places, but just to stream it as part of a subscription, I couldn't find it anywhere except for Hoopla. Okay. All right. Uh, so are there any final thoughts or uh, any anything you'd like to plug or, or uh, announce uh, before we end the episode? I suppose... Uh... If uh, I'd like to thank uh, everybody who uh, listened to us over the second season, as well as the first, uh, and I hope uh, you're able to find new films. And uh, in uh, hopefully we get season three going. And uh, in the meantime, you know, please contact us via social media or uh, like the website itself. We're always interested in hearing other people's opinions and uh, maybe suggestions for films as well. And uh, yeah, absolutely, I hope uh, we can come back. Uh, with more next year. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, we have uh, some ideas for season three, and I think will be uh, another great uh, season to talk about movies. Mm. All right. So, and you know, obviously, we'd like to wish you from Heroic Purgatory, which is an unlikely name, unlikely source of wishes for the holidays. <laughs> but you know, it is heroic, so why not? But you know, we wish you Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And we will see hear from you, and uh, you'll hear from us uh, sometime in the new year. Bye bye, everyone. Bye.